Not sure what sports are provided in Calgary? Sport Calgary Sport Directory will help you find the sport and organization that's right for you. Visit sportcalgary.ca to learn more. Kyle Schufeld Gymnastics is located in southeast Calgary and has a mission to enrich lives, build community, and foster a more active future through the magic of gymnastics. Founded and proudly owned by 2004 Olympic gymnastics champion Kyle Schufeld, the gym was developed through his years of traveling through hundreds of gymnastics clubs around the world, where he noticed that while high-performance sports is glamorous, participation simply for the love of the sport has the most impact. Learn about the program and how to register at kyleshufeldgymnastics.com. Sport Calgary presents the Face First Podcast with your hosts, Alicia Rissling and Grace Defoe. And here they are sliding right on in, Grace and Alicia. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Face First Podcast. My name is Alicia Riz Rizling, and I'm here with my co-host, Grace Defoe. <laughs> Grace, where are you coming to us from today? Well, there's not much other places to go other than Calgary, and it's yeah, just staying in Calgary. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I'm on the road. I will be headed wherever I can head, uh, hopefully mostly Germany. Um, but I'm currently spending a little bit of time in my isolation. But it's just so I can get on the flight. But we have a pretty special guest with us here today. Uh, he happens to coach both Grace and I. He, he has been to eight Olympic and Paralympic Games, six Commonwealth Games, three Pan American games and 11 world championships. Please welcome coach extraordinaire, less romantic. Thank you very much for the intro. I was <laughs> expecting this kind of kind reception after I made you guys run around on the track, made you sweat, but, but um, I appreciate your introduction. <laughs> Plus, your introduction doesn't even speak words to think because the one thing I forgot to mention is you actually have won Olympic Games as an athlete yourself in pole vault, correct? Yeah, yeah. I don't remember that far back. It was a long, long time ago. <laughs> I know it was supposed to cross the street when I competed, you know, that was that, that long ago. So, no, it, it wasn't the most pleasant experience. As a matter of fact, most of my Olympics were not the best experience in my life, but that's it. Uh, Sometimes my fault, sometimes just the circumstances. But uh, through the years, I enjoyed uh, the opportunity to be with the national team and and lead some of it. I was a head coach for a number of Olympic teams, so uh, it was a, it was a great experience. Wow! Yeah. Well, somebody doesn't. Well, you have way more experience than Grace and I combined, I think, and some pretty special opportunities. Um, why don't you just take us right from the beginning on how you got to be the coach at the level that you are? Well, first of all, just to clarify one thing, experience, it's, I paid a high price for it. That's my age. So that's it. <laughs> so that's my experience is coming from. No, I, I, I came from East European system, which, uh, which some of you know, some of you don't. Uh, very strong educational base. I spent four years in university, have a final year master's degree. I did nothing but track and field for six times a day, eight, six hours a day. So there was no real shortcuts there. Very strong, very basic. Some of the things we did, it's very applicable. Some of the things we did, no longer applicable because it's kind of an old-fashioned. But but it was a very old Russian, um, Soviet kind of, not Russian at the time, a Soviet kind of approach to it. 
And uh, but I, I I think I benefited from it tremendously because uh, it gave me a very good base from physiology, from uh, from uh, biomechanics, from uh, coaching, uh, not coaching education, from coaching uh, uh, methodology. So and some pedagogy. Now I'm probably short on sports psychology. <laughs> there wasn't a high topic in my in my system. The only thing we did the high sports I was two by four. If you're not ready, I hit you. <laughs> so you'll be ready in a hurry, you know. It's one of the two by four methods. And I had a lot of, a lot of sports psychologists friends and so I'm just joking about it. And I, I, I value what they do, but we didn't do much about it that time. So, uh, so that's where it started. And then I have um I have quickly got a mentorship with, I've got a sports school appointment in, in my hometown and the sports school were typical to what probably some of you know about the, the, the East European gymnastics sports school. The same thing existed for track as well. So the kids were going to school in the morning for uh, four hours and they trained right after every day. So there was pretty regimented. Not, not what we have in a sports school here. There was no flexibility for the kids to do what they want to do. They had to do what we told them to do. So that was, that was, that's where I started. And then I had some good quality athletes and uh, had some results. And then uh, soon after I, I got, uh, um, I had a colleague at the university that was a Jewish guy. And then, and then uh, Romania was the only country that, that uh, diplomatic relationships with uh, Israel at that time. So that's where they channeled their, the Russian Jews to go to Israel. Like they came to Romania, got the visa in, in Bucharest and go there. And this, this friend of mine said to me, why don't you come to Israel and coach here? Get a, to, I can arrange for a two-year contract. And that's what it happened. So eventually I ended up in 1975 in, in Israel and, and worked there. Now, the only thing I did, I didn't stay two years. I, I jumped uh, out of my contract a year later and uh, escaped into a refugee camp in Greece. Which you was had to go to a refugee camp? Yeah, I did. Holy. Yeah. It wasn't like it's not exactly a refugee camp you see in Ethiopia or, or Syria or anything else, but it wasn't, Still. wasn't, it wasn't a, a Marriott on the beach, okay? So it was, well, we had, you know, we had, it was challenging times. It was different. I was young. I was 26, 25 years old. Nothing mattered, okay? So it was just easy to, uh, to get through. But uh, yeah, I spent almost. Um, a little more than a year there, and then uh, then I accepted for ca to Canada, which was a mistake for a Canadian government to let me in. <laughs> but <laughs> so, so uh, after an extensive uh, uh, investigation, actually CIA did most of the work for the Canadian and for the RCMP at that time, and the CIA did the in, in interviews and everything else. Eventually, I ended up interviewed a couple of times at the Canadian embassy, and then. Uh, uh, I decided. No, I just. I decided before to come here. And the Austrians were South Africa. They would have let me in about ten seconds because I needed big white boys there. Okay. And then, then New Zealand, Australia. But those were the, the the time in a refugee camp to get to uh, to Australia was excess excess of two years, and I didn't ah. want to wait that long to be there. So I waited a year in in uh, in. Uh, and I, well, I wasn't. I was at Ainsville a bit in a place called Lavrion, which is about sixty kilometers east of uh, east of uh, Athens, so next to the communist island, which Papandreou at that time put the communists on the island. And there's nothing on the island, like nothing, nothing. So you guys want to come to here to your island? Do whatever you. Yes. Want. So it was kind of an extreme approach to 
social justice. <laughs> but oh the start of that, anyways, that's what they did. But, uh, so anyways, uh, I, the, the, the camp was interesting. Uh, it, it's a big building with multiple uh, levels of three stories and then bunk beds and 95% of us were just young men. Okay, Mr. of almost all of them or so some different forms, some jump ship, some jump, you know, airplanes, some got through the border. Various stories were amazing what, what we could what we listen to. And uh, and then so uh, so that's uh, and then once Canada accepted me then I, I choose Calgary. Don't ask me why. <laughs> I just saw a picture of of, of uh, the mountains. And the green, the Bow River, Bow, Bow Train going down and look behind. Oh, that's nice. That's a place I want to be. Well, it was a bit different. I, I, you know, at the embassy, they ask you, where do you want to go? So I would like to go to Vancouver. No, 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 no. We're not going to let you in there, okay? We don't need anything from Vancouver. Okay, how about Ottawa? No, no, no chance. So what's my outside? Swift Current, Saskatchewan, Edmonton. Oh, can I get pick Calgary? Yeah, pick Calgary is good. So I got in here. It was good. It was, it was a good time of my of my life because uh, 1977, the economy here was amazing, right? And about yeah. half a day later, I worked. Okay, I got in work with Shell, met a guy, that, on, uh, a Hungarian guy who I didn't know. He's a manager at, the, at Shell and gave me a job immediately. I went up to Norton about a week later and worked on the exploration. So... Uh, so that was good. And I started coaching. Uh, well, I couldn't speak English. I still kind of learning the language, but uh, <laughs> I speak English. And, and I tried to, uh, I try. So I met, I asked around. I met again my Hungarian connection. Somebody said, there is a, there is a, there's a man named Mr. Track in Calgary, John Cannon. And then I hooked you up with John Cannon. John, you know, John is a kind, kind of guy, <laughs> if you know him. And then, uh, it came out in, I was in, in July, I said, I'll call you in September. So it came out in September when I came back from, from a week from north. And uh, he said to me, here's this guy, this big black guy, coach him. Well, I can't really talk, I can't really speak much, you know, try to coach him. So it was a struggle, but, but, and I couldn't continue. I had to go back to work. I had to, you know, getting my family out and whatnot. So, so that wasn't, it wasn't a, wasn't exactly track because there's no money in track. Even today is no money in track. Let's face reality. It's not a lucrative business. Yeah. No money in, in Olympic sport. I don't call amateur sport. I hate when people say, you're amateur. No, we're not amateur. Nothing amateur of what you're doing, okay? It's very professional. Mm -hmm. Only because you're not getting paid for it. I always argue with people, don't call it amateur sport. It's Olympic sport. And so mm -hmm. uh, reality is that, uh, that but you got to give JC credit because he called me back in February and said, do you want to come to my high school in the center of the and, and coach my forward group? And that's why I started. And, uh, you know, I, I still jumped for a year, year and a half here in Canada. I competed, but uh, I wasn't really that much into it anymore. It was just like, so that's, that's how I got to Canada. And, um, you know, I'm, and the, the interesting part of the story, not that it necessarily have to be told, but uh, in 1986, um, when the World Junior started in first edition was in Athens in Greece. And, um, I was on a team coach and went to the, um, we were invited to go to the embassy. And then I actually met the same guy who let me in. No way. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So, do you remember me? No. Sorry, this is the World Juniors of, of Athletics? 
Yeah. You're saying? Yeah. yeah. And yeah. and you got like full circle. You got to meet the guy who actually yeah, like yeah. helped so you. Get into just, you know, there was an embassy sitting there and it's okay. Hey, do you remember you signed a paper to get into Canada? Well, of course, it couldn't remember. It's not. I'm not the only one there. But <laughs> it was a nice, nice little experience from my end, anyways. And uh, I love Greece. I love. I've been there too many times, and uh, and uh, I, I enjoyed that uh, that part of the world. Even yeah, even the refugee camp was not so bad. Nice and warm beach was about uh, <laughs> three minutes walk. If they let us out, they told us. Okay, you're making us all jealous now. Okay, most of us ah. are trapped. We're trapped. We're trapped. We can't go traveling to those nice places right now. I know. I know. <laughs> you must be uh, really missing the sun right now, Les. I know you guys normally go down south. For yeah, a bit. you guys told me I, I, I can't go down. This is the first year in the last, well, I was just saying somebody's the first year probably since uh, high school. So my junior years of competing, I haven't traveled all year. I have wow. not traveled all year anywhere. And I, I, you know, I, I do miss that, obviously. I miss, I miss the travel. As much as travel is a pain in the butt, yet, you know, guys know. Airports are not as much fun as when I was young. I just hardly could wait to get to the airport, right? Mm-hmm. Now it's no longer that much of a fun, you know, you're lining up and whatnot. But, but still, it's still travel is important and, and going somewhere. And, I'm, I'm, you know, last year we missed the most of well, all the major meets, so I couldn't, uh, couldn't go anywhere. So, uh, and I'm hoping that it rebounds enough to be able to go again. I'm, I just got invited to Austria for the big meet we have uh, with Nikki, and then uh, hopefully we'll get to uh, to Austria in the end of May. But uh, I'm not sure how it's going to work. So. Yeah. So let's just mention Nikki Nikki Orden. She's a Canadian heptathlete, and she's an Olympic hopeful for 2021. Les, what other athletes are you currently working with that maybe are hopefuls for 2021? Well, she's uh, the only one right now. I mean, Sam Effa, who's also I'm coaching, Sam is mostly in Toronto, uh, trying to get on the team. Uh, you know, the difficulties are the lack of competitions in North America for us. And uh, Europe is doing better, and, and for some, in some way, they allow them to compete and train better. Like, in, in mm-hmm. example, I talked to the uh, Charles von Company, who is the head of the... Uh, the training center in Hingelo in Holland, like Holland is locked down, but they allow the athletes to train in a center in, just like would be here. CIS would let you to come train inside. Not you can't do that. You locked out. Okay, so that's that's difference. So they can train and they can actually their competitions. A couple of competitions in Europe now. You know you can debate if it's right or wrong. It's healthy or not healthy. But but there's a huge disadvantage in my opinion between what the athletes have here and what the athletes have in the rest of the world, most of the part of the world. So, yeah. You know, the field is very uneven, unbalanced. I think Alicia and I both feel that watching a lot of the other nations right now, obviously in Calgary, we're locked down, can't go to the gym. Um, it's too cold now and snowy to really do much outside in terms of track. And we're seeing other nations strength training in gyms, running all together in on a track, um, in indoor tracks as well. And they have, much better facilities too. So yeah. we'll definitely be playing a little bit of catch up in the next year, yeah. who knows how long, but yeah. I think we'll both testify to meeting with you over zoom for the first few months of the pandemic versus training in person. It, it just makes such a difference to have. Yeah. A well, I, I, I was looking forward to working with you guys. I, I, I really enjoyed it. Honestly, I'm not just sucking up to for no good reason. But, you have uh, to be nice. It's our podcast. 
but reality reality is that uh, compared to what we have here and compared to what others do, like in Australia, in spite of the huge lockdown, very severe lockdown, they allowed some athletes, they give them exceptions to train. You know, the meet last weekend in Australia, some excellent results in the decathlon, you know, just the, the boys, they were training. They didn't just happen sitting in a bunk bed, you know, and, and, and hoping they're going to get fit. Okay, so you can, you know, as much as mind is matters, but you can't have, you know, I can't, I, I'm so mindly, uh, so emotionally and mentally strong, but I'm physically unfit. So <laughs> I can't compete anymore. So that sounds like an injury waiting to happen. Yeah, that's right. So that, that's it. And I guess you guys probably have the face, same situation when you get into the actual training phase, you'll be difficulties from the point of injuries. You know, you can't, you know, but. You know, it's, it's, that's one of the challenges that, that uh, you'll have to overcome. And uh, I think, I think you know, we're, we have this positive idea about uh, you have to always uh, focus on the on, uh, possibilities, not the problems. Yeah, it's, it's good, nice, but, uh, but I think the possibilities are not as big as the, the problems, in my opinion, oftentimes. So, but I'm trying to be, and I really actually even this morning just sent out an email from my girls that I'm coaching and say, you know, take the week easy. This is another week, then you want to get fit. It's a Christmas week. Now, don't eat yourself out of shape in one week because, you know, the gravity is to your enemy. Okay. You have to leave the ground and gravity has no days off. Gravity goes 9.81 meter per second. We'll put you back on the ground in a hurry if you're not fit. So, Les is known for his incredible quotes. Um, we, we as his, his athletes, really take them to heart. And some of them in which we have to write them down. And I'm going to write that one down. Gravity never takes a day off. That's, that's the quote, last quote of the day. Um, Les, I've missed you because you're, and your wise words. Um, I really appreciate that. My next question for you, though, is um, so you coach everybody now. You've coached, you're coaching, well, you we're with the National Sports School, as you mentioned, it's very different than here. And you've also coached uh, world champions and Olympic athletes. Um, how does your approach to dealing with athletes of different calibers change? Well, I, you know, everything has changed and, and you have to adapt. You have to move forward. I think my biggest change in, in coaching is a level of communication. I'm trying to learn to communicate better because that's the key element today's generation. You guys include it. I can't just say, shut up and do it. It's not really working that well. It used to work 25 years ago. What do you mean? Like, <laughs> you know, you, what do you want to know tomorrow? What you think? Shut up. I'll, you got here. I'll tell you tomorrow. I have to kind of share the information more. And it's, it's okay. It's, I, I have no problem with it. I'm just saying that, that what adapting to the to need of the environment, okay? And you guys are not that much different than what the athletes were 25 years ago. Just your needs are different. The quality of the athletes is about the same. Physiology hasn't changed substantially. Not like you're superior or inferior to what I coached 25 years ago, 30 years ago, something like that. You know, that's a, that's that's a, that, so I I don't I don't worry about the physiology. But also I enjoy coaching other sports as much as as much as I love my sport track and field. I enjoy coaching. I work with Davaris Daniels, a wide receiver. I work with a lot of hockey players. I work with, with others for synchronized swimming, believe it or not. Not in the pool. I'm not jumping my feet on. And <laughs> when I expect that from me, okay? I'm, I'm staying on the dry land. They have to come out and, and work with me. So those were fun, and, and, and it's still fun, still in, in exciting. 
because I like to develop athletes. I always say I'm, I'm, I'm making you become better at the event that you choose to. Coaching is become. Teaching is, is learn to learn. Managing is to do. Coaching is to become. If you think about it, you try to make people to become what they want to be. I want you to become the best busted person that you can be. And I, I, you know, that's all I can have you with the physical preparation and whatnot. But I'm, I, you, it's still your choice is to have to develop your things, right? So that's how I approach that. So the changes for me came from the fact that as things move forward, I have to adapt. And the change is inevitable. The whole, right? Whole, if, you, if you don't change, you have left behind the hurry. More wise words. So those are all, all amazing to hear. I'm wondering what kind of like when you're looking at working with an athlete or an athlete approaches you to maybe ask for your services, like what are the top qualities that you're looking for in them? Is it more like, like, are you looking for those like physiological, like amazing athletes or is it more on the mental and like perseverance commitment side of things? No, the first thing I'm looking for is how much you can pay. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> we know that's false. We it's know that's false. It is the trade from the podcast. I didn't say that. No. Okay, so okay, so the first thing I'm looking at, obviously with the track athletes, I'm looking at certain physical qualities, physical abilities. I don't call it potential because potential means you're not good right now. If you look at the word potential, it means that you're not good. My old, not my old, an old coach from University of Calgary, Gary, always said to me, I'm going to get fired because my team has potential. But really, they're not good I, right I, now. I have to get fired because what has potential? I missed that part. Team. Oh, my team has potential. I'm going to get fired because my team has potential, which really meant it's not good right now. So, I, But I'm, I'm looking at abilities, physical abilities, obviously, but also motivation, desire. Again, I, I, I always say I measure success with one athlete at a time. You think about it, because they're different. I, I, I was in Vancouver last year, two years ago, and then on the Vancouver release, and, and one guy comes to me, it's like, do you remember me? Hell no. I mean, he's short and bald. Okay, it was, <laughs> oh, you, you coached me in forward in 1978 at Santa Memorial. Holy I can't remember that far back, you know. And so, but what I mean is that and he was so happy that I helped him to jump over a fence or something. I, I don't know how I jumped. But reality is that the success is measured different ways with athletes. So you, can't, you can't just say, my best experiences didn't come from, from uh, the top-level athletes. My best work I've done with some of the people that would never make me famous. Because those those produce those improve the most, and it's great. That's what that's what coaching is all about for me. I really like I really like when you see you guys improving. I told you, Grace, you guys you improved so much mechanically this year. Okay, so that's important to me. Now you know, are you going to break the world like one hundred meter dash? No, you won't. No. <laughs> you know, so but that's not the point. The point is if I only work for those who want to go that level, and I, I'll tell you right now, Olympics are the best place in the world. A lot more different uh, levels of competition is a lot more enjoyable. And fun to watch. It just depends on the level. And there's kind of like sometimes the lower levels have more excitement because there's more people that maybe come out of the woodwork that you wouldn't really expect. Whereas the Olympics is kind of like the same people tend to win. And it's just because they have the hard work and they have the talent. 
I wouldn't call it lower level because it's not the levels are various, but the lower level doesn't mean that they're they're not worthy to work with them or to, to help them out. Okay, and they're oftentimes those guys have more desire and more more wanting to do things than some of the some of the top dogs are pretty lazy sometimes, you know. And I know that from the especially junior level, I always say to them, "What got you here won't get you there," which means a lot of junior teams made by talent. And all of a sudden, the next step, they're just not working hard enough to get next step. So, by the you know, it's just just very simple concept of you know what you can get somewhere with this pure physiological talent, but it's not enough to get further from there. And and the biggest enemy of good is or great is good. Okay, so if you, if you if you want to get great, you have to work not to be just good. But I, I, I think it's it's a fun to to work with differently. I really enjoy working with different level of athletes. As much as I love sport, as much as I love track and field, I I love working with other sports. And sometimes you learn more from other sports than your own sport. But you don't get bogged down and take up positions and whatnot. You get you get approach it differently. And even with you guys, I still need to understand a little bit more about how the sport itself functions. I watched on the CBC the. Uh, the illusion and blocks at the uh, on Sunday last couple of Sundays, right? They showed some from Europe, and I just watched some of the starting positions. So they show it makes a difference. I need to understand in order to help you. I mean, just to make you run faster from zero to sixty, that's okay. It's different, but I also would like that to be transferable to actually your success in your sport, right? Because if you just sprint fast, you just you can't. So you have to kind of massage the two together. Of course. Um, so my next question for you, based on that, is not only do you deal with athletes from different sports, but you also have coached um, some pretty incredible male and female athletes. Do you have a different approach in how you treat your athletes, or do you find that you can coach your male athletes and females in the same way? Yeah, there's a gender difference how you coach people. I made a lot of mistakes in early years because I always said blended group. <clears throat> blended group means you always have girls and, and, and boys, so men and women together. And I Unfortunately, I didn't treat the women well enough. I didn't pay enough attention. They just them, put them into the boys' group and said, train with the guys. I had a very strong by, uh, man's group with Michael Smith and those guys. And then I got some of the others from just training with them. And they, they weren't really, I, they didn't benefit from, I recognize now, they didn't benefit from my coaching as much as I could do it now. Then things have changed. I get more girls coming in my program. And then Jessica Zelenka is one example. You know, so, and today I only have girls. I've done with men. I'm finished with men. Okay, I'm not interested in men anymore for a number of reasons. Except for, for Sam. Come on, you still got Sam for some love. It's a slow development. The pattern for men is I'm old. I can't wait long enough. I got a call from a, from a mother saying, like, I got a 12 years old girl. Would you like to coach her? She said, 12. By the time she's going to be 26 at the peak, I'll be dead. I'm not I'm not. <laughs> No, it's impossible for me to hang around for four more years, what, 15 more years or 16 more years. Okay, so I'm, I may be joking about it, but reality is there's a, the girls develop much faster, so it's easier to achieve results. It's selfish decision, but it's okay. That's the way it is. But So going back to gender differences, a couple of things. I always feel that um, women like to have a, um, an easy start to the workout, a little bit of light conversation, and maybe an icebreaker. It doesn't have to be funny. It doesn't have to be joking. But, but you can't just walk in and say, okay, let's get going. Okay? Got to get a little bit different. I also know that women don't respond well to negative comments. 
You can yell at Google, you got you fat ass, you can do that. You know, that's not working. With the guys, you can sometimes get away with some guys respond better and say, okay, bastard, I'll 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 show it to you. Okay. <laughs> you know, I'll come back and I prove that you're an ass. And and so so that's that's how that's that that those are a few things. Also need to not to walk away from a practice session angry. You try to kind of because then the next one doesn't start well. Mm -hmm. if you, and, yeah. and and when you come in first as a session, try to leave your misery behind. Okay? Because not everybody has a good day all the time. But when you walk in a session with the people, and not just so I, for everybody, the more for women, you don't want to be angry and negative and everything. It's trying to be kind of leave that leave the garbage that you have in your life behind you and start the workout with a clean state. So those are the kind of a difference on, on emotional level. You know, I, I think I think on the physiological level, again, as I said, I think I think women respond differently to physiological challenges, and they, and and to me, in, in more positive, it's much easier to work with women. And also, like, like when I say easier, it's also they're more kind to you. <laughs> well, I need to be that's only you mean, that's only because you allow for the the light chit chat to start. <laughs> you <laughs> ease us into it. <laughs> I don't need to be hugged. It's not the point, but but you know, I, sometimes some kindness. That's just like you know, a little kindness is it feels good and nice. Yeah, and I like to. I would like to believe that I can make workouts a lot more fun now than I used to. Not as dry. It's not just we just do that. Okay, goodbye, go home. Got a bit, of, you know, communication stuff. And again, goes back to the idea. Communication is the biggest change in my in my life. I, I read neuroscience books. There's one from David Rock say the way your your brain at work and this talks a lot about the the approach to influencing people. That the communication has to be something. If you have a good communication, you have an approach to response from the person. If you have a negative communication, then you have a rejecting approach. So that, then it's no good. So then you all of a sudden it's hard to it's hard to make you focus on on something I'm telling you when you're not really focusing on yourself. So uh, so. This is all sounds to me a lot like sports psych for someone who doesn't have any sports psych in his background. <laughs> I have a PhD from Bulgaria in sports psychology. Mm -hmm. Like I said, a PhD in two by four. A PhD in two by fours. Well, less is never short for a, a good quote. So my next question for you is: If you have an athlete that's about to partake in in the biggest race of their life, doesn't matter if it's World Championships or whatever. What do you have them, what do you coach them to do maybe the week leading up to that big event? Well, I mean, the, the physiological part is, to me is very searched in a sense that I do, I do prepare you if, if I'm coaching you for the final competition. I do prepare the final week of training a long time earlier and see how you respond to it. So the final week of training always researched, rehearsed earlier, in my opinion. So, so that's that you don't just all of a sudden do something brand new or something. So you, you pretty much know what you're going to do in a week before you compete because you've done it a number of times before in training sessions. The same thing. Not all the time, but change me up. So that, that's one of physiological. Emotional part right now, right now I think, I, think I, I find that especially in, in, uh, in my sport or in, in track and field, uh, overcoaching is a big problem. People say too many things to the athletes at the time, but they wouldn't understand anyways. So if you watch, and somebody said to me, if you say five things 
to an athlete in a, in a, in a, in between jumps or between throws doesn't make you more competent, more competent, makes you more stupid. Okay. <laughs> I'm, trying, I'm trying to say as little as possible. And I think the biggest thing is to be able to say when somebody comes to and say, so how was it? Good. Do it again. That kind of stuff rather than, rather than try to analyzing skills in the final phase in, in a competition is useless. Mm-hmm. Sounds really, really familiar because I feel like I always come back and I'm like, you're like, how was it? And I come back with a few things and then you just say, it was good. Just, it was good. Just move on. Because I mean, <laughs> like, I feel like athletes sometimes crave so much information, but then they don't know what to do with it. So then, you know, you're over, over inundating us with, with yeah, feedback. That's good that you want the information and I, I want you guys to get or, or anybody to have information. But I, I have to guard myself not to give you too much information. I was mentoring a young pro world coach about three, four years ago, and I watched him through the training sessions through the through the last three months, and he did this work. This all of us in the competition, the kid running and jumping and taking up comes to the coach, coach said to me, "Your pro world plant is a piece of shit." He looks at him and says, "We haven't talked about it for two months." Sometimes the tendency is to say something that it's not then being part of your preparation. We only work on approach now. So don't don't tell me about power plans right now. You never told me for the last two months that I have to do that, right? So so it's it's kind of careful what you say. That's what I'm trying to say. Careful what you introduce in the last minute because athlete's mind is very fragile. It's very fragile. I've been a fragile athlete in my time. Okay? I wasn't very good at but my times were different. My coach didn't say much anyways. He always said to me, if I don't tell you anything, you're good. If I say something, it'll be negative. I was going to crap. Okay, so constructive. That, I, call I, it constructive. Coaching. I said to my athletes, I don't want to say anything to you, then you're happy. If I don't say anything, you should be happy. If I say something, don't expect anything good. Now I learned to say good, good execution. I learned it, which is important, you, I think. And we know you're working on it. I know Grace and I in particular, on a day that, how does it feel when on a day that less gives you a compliment? You're like, whoa, I had a good day. <laughs> yeah. But also qualified effect. I don't do it too many times. No. <laughs> I know. Our head gets too big. That's what you said. I think that one time I got a compliment. <laughs> I can't give you too many or your ego will get too big. I'm like, okay, I'll take one from the whole summer. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Maybe more than one. So, there was a few, but, but I, mean, I, I think it's it's better be careful in coaching on what kind of a communication level you are, what exactly you say. But I think that at least in track, but even I, I don't know what you guys in your sport, how much communication you get for your coach in, in a in a during the competition. You can't say much during competition, but also debriefing has to be in two different or three different stages. Debriefing immediately after the race not necessarily the most practical. We need sometimes to down and figure out what happened. It's on both ends. Debriefing always have to start with the athletes tell you what he or she feels, not what you think or what you see. Then you can see maybe we've seen the same thing. Let's go. Okay, let's talk about it. Yeah, I mean, I I felt that um, with talking about on, like our on ice communication is you know, we don't always have that immediate feedback that track and field does because we don't get to see our coach until, you know, maybe after two runs of the day. So you kind of have to think about how you felt yourself and debrief it in your mind and then have the questions at the end of this like sliding session to then go over and have that conversation. But it's not as immediate as 
as maybe some of the track events that, you know, you jump and then you can talk about it and then jump again, talk about it. Um, so I find it's a really interesting balance between being able to debrief it as an athlete yourself in your mind versus asking for help. Yeah. This is, this is just recent in track and field that, uh, that the rule has changed. You can communicate your athletes for longest time. There is no way of communicating. It was illegal to talk illegal. You can get yellow carded to, to communicate. Oh, yeah. I remember Atlanta in 96 with Michael. We, we agreed that we have sign language. Okay, so I have numbers. But a notebook, he put things. Hey, so if, if your approach number two slow at the end, I lift on my tooth, it's two or three or whatnot. So that's the way you communicate it. Okay. Or you move your cobalt in front of your feet and say this far away you were from the war or, or the, whatever bottle you have, beer bottle. Oh. You have to speak your own little language that involved moving bottles and holding fingers up. <laughs> yeah. So, but now it's now it's easy. Now, now you're allowed to come to. They can come to you and and talk to you to certain distance. Okay. So, so it's easier to communicate. But even then, I think sometimes the best thing is to let the athlete to figure out what's happening. Let the athlete to develop that feeling of. It's, it's, I keep telling you, it's your event. You should know it by now. Don't ask me what you feeling about. So what you have, what, what you think? So and I can, you can tell me. You know, coach, I feel like, like it just, I just you know, too short to the end, too quick or something like that. Okay? Yeah, I guess. Yeah, you're right. So what are you gonna do about it? No, I don't know. Well, if you figure it out, because I can tell you a million things to do, but it's your approach, not mine. You know, I might say, well, if I were you, I would move back. But if I were just tighten up, so try to give the ownership to the to the activity, the ownership to the actual movement okay so that's that's what i'm trying to do amazing so Les, how much longer do you think you're going to coach for well i think um i i can tell you a secret uh, my I, I met with financial advisor which i have not much money put away i mean i was married twice and it killed me <laughs> both of my ex-wives have condo in in phoenix and um Anyways. Our, our, our listeners are probably like, oh my gosh, we're Grace and I are like, yeah, we know this story many times. <laughs> Anyways, Next I'm, was. I'm not sure if I told me I have enough money for eight more years. Eight more years. Yeah, so I'm going to probably to crow by about, you know, in eight years. Got to pack it in. <laughs> so I've been coaching until I'm alive. I'm alive. I've been coaching until I'm alive. Okay. Until I can, I can exist. So I can until my brain functions and my physical aid. No, I'm, there's nothing else in my life. That's so I did. And I love it. It's not a, bad day for coaching. not a bad day for me coaching. I never get up in the morning. Oh my God, I have to go coach. Mm -hmm. I work with people at the shelf for, I worked for a shell 11 years while mm -hmm. I'm still coaching. And, uh, you know, there's sort of certain people that the calendar crosses every day, every, every night, every day, a day, every day, day that towards retirement. That's a miserable life. You get up in the morning, you try to count how many more days to retire. That's not exactly what I would like to live my life. So for me to get up and go coach in the morning, hey, I'm fine. That's a lie. We all know you want to go to the, the gym and sit in the sauna in the hot tub before you go coach. Yeah, Glencoe is a great place when it's open because I can sit in the hot tub and steam and, uh, and uh, you know, do a little bit of workout like about I, I sit longer in a hot tub than a workout. <laughs> hey, you know what? At your age, you deserve every minute. Yeah. Of that. <laughs> Thanks, Lucia. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right. Well, Grace, do you have anything else for last that you want to ask today? 
No, I mean, I just want to say thanks, Les, for coming on, number one. But also, you've done so much for sport. And I know for Alicia and I as well, just working with, agreeing to work with, <laughs> with our, our group and get us better at sprinting as well. We, we so appreciate your coaching style, your communication, all that every day. And, and it's always a joy. And I know we're looking forward to next I summer. love working with you guys. And I'm not just saying that because I'm, I'm a tape here. But I love working with you. I love it working everybody. And uh, and I, I appreciate you inviting me. I, I like to uh, rumble around. No, I I know what, once in, and we haven't had a session together, so I've been happy. I wrote down three quotes of the day because usually we just get one, but today I got three. So gravity never takes a day off. Never um, leave a training session angry. That's a yeah. great word of advice. And uh, what got you here won't get you to the next step. So those are the things I learned today from last. Once you get here, won't get you there. Won't get you here, won't get you there. Exactly. Um, thank you, Les, so much for joining us today yeah. and taking the time. And uh, it was really nice to talk to you. Okay. Yeah. Thank you soon, okay? Good. Appreciate it. Okay. Bye. Time, guys. Thanks for listening to Face First Podcast. At Canland Energy, community investment is a cornerstone of our corporate culture. We have a responsibility to support the communities in which we work and operate in. By focusing our investment initiatives, we can make a positive and measurable impact. Thank you to Kidsport for the opportunity to become their first partner here in Cochrane, Alberta. It comes with great elation knowing that Canland's contributions will be a key piece to kids returning to sport this year. Looking to listen to Sport Calgary's podcast on the go? Be sure to follow the Face First podcast on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, free to download on all iOS and Android devices.